Please pray with me one more time. Yes, Lord, let us never, ever outlive our love for you. Let it be as we sang earlier, if ever we love thee, my Jesus, our Jesus, it is now. Thank you, God, for those encouraging words, that beautiful offertory, and once again, most of all, your son, who is the reason why all of this is created and all of this is is made for for us to praise. So uh, we ask your blessing on our time now as we get into your word, grateful for you revealing your truth to us once again. And I pray that our text today would speak specifically to each of our hearts in the way that you have purposed today, this very moment, and you would accomplish your purpose through your word by the power of your spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our sermon text today is Mark chapter 15. So why don't we turn there together in our Bibles. Mark 15, and our verses are 1 through 15. And I've entitled the sermon today, What Shall We Do With King Jesus? And it's basically taken from verse 12 of our passage where an infamous Roman asks the crowds, What shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? That was this man's question 2,000 years ago, and that is the question we are confronted with today. And there's really no more important question than this. Where you spend eternity, after the handful of decades that you have here on this earth is done, depends on how you answer this question. What will you do with this man who calls himself king and lord of all? And by the way, Muhammad Ali, he's not the king of the world, as he claimed when he was alive, the greatest. LeBron James is not the king, even though that's his nickname, King James. And, And even the actual King James, who lived in the 1600s, he's not the king of the world, nor is King George or King Louis XIV, who was Louis the Great, or the Sun King, nor Genghis Khan, whose name means universal ruler, nor was it Caesar or Nero or any other king of history. And it really doesn't matter much at all what you know about or what you think about any of these past kings. They're all dead. At this point, there are a couple paragraphs in high school textbooks, mere footnotes on the pages of history. No one thinks to ask, What will you do with King Edward III? Your knowledge or opinion of him is of no significance whatsoever. But your knowledge and opinion, and most of all, your relationship with King Jesus is of eternal importance. And the king himself invites you to believe in him as your personal savior, and he calls you to submit to him as your personal lord. He seeks to be the rescuer of your hell-bound soul, and he demands to be king seated on the throne of your heart. And he doesn't do this at gunpoint, nor as an empty threat, but rather by proclaiming the truth about himself. He's the only one who can save you from your sins. And he does it by proving his love for us, by dying the death that we deserved 
in order to save us from our sins. So let's get into our text. We're going to meet a man named Pontius Pilate. He was another earthly ruler of sorts, a Roman governor. And I suggested last week that when we study the Bible or read the Bible or hear sermons, we should put on our our specs, right? And the S was for sins to forsake, and the P was for promises to claim, and C was for commands to obey, and the last S was for stumbling blocks to avoid. But the E was for examples to follow. Look for examples to follow. Or, as in Peter a few Sundays ago, and Pilate today, examples not to follow. Okay? So let's look at our text and let's see what Pilate did with King Jesus. And hopefully we can make some applications to ourselves as we do. But if you are able to stand, I'll ask you to stand as we honor God's word. And I'm going to read our text for this morning, Mark chapter 15, and we're covering verses 1 through 15 today. And this is the word of God. Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation. And binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate questioned him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, it is as you say. The chief priests began to accuse him harshly. Then Pilate questioned him again, saying, do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. And so Pilate was amazed. Now, at the feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. The crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, Crucify him! But Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them, and after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Please be seated. In the first verse there, Mark quickly sets the scene, so we're going to do that as well. He says, early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes, the whole council, the whole Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the Jews, they held a consultation, and binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Folks, this is trial number three out of six, which I told you a couple Sundays ago. There were six trials that Jesus actually underwent that morning. And this one was before the religious authorities. They all agree on a death sentence for Jesus. That's their verdict. And it happens early in the morning of Good Friday. Sometime between 5 and 6 where they're having this official meeting to pronounce their verdict after those first two trials. 
So after this consultation where they confirm the charge of blasphemy, the next step in their plan is to send him to the civil authorities in order to enact this death sentence. So they, they bind Jesus again and they delivered him to Pilate. And this was likely around six o'clock in the morning. This leads us to trial number four, which is the second phase of the trials that Jesus goes through. And this is now before the secular authorities, the civil political authorities. The first three were with the religious. Okay, and so specifically it's before Pilate. Pilate. So what does Pilate do with King Jesus? Well, in verses two through five, we see that he evaluates, he considers, and he even marvels at Jesus. But he doesn't believe. He's amazed, but he doesn't believe in him. Pilate. Who is Pontius Pilate? And he's not as the mistaken Sunday school student thought um, had something to do with airplanes. And this is Pilate, P-I-L-A-T-E. The Roman prefect, the governor of Judea under Emperor Tiberius in A.D. 26 to 36, roughly 10 year span. The Bible exposition commentary says, Pilate has gone down in history as the man who tried Jesus Christ three times, declared him not guilty and yet crucified him just the same. As we read the Gospels, we see in his handling of Jesus' trials that they show him to be a, a vacillating, indecisive type of man. He's characterized by lack of decision and firmness. We might say today that Pilate had no backbone. and He had no intestinal fortitude. Philo, the ancient Jewish scholar, he lived during Jesus' time, he described Pilate as a man of corruption, his acts of insolence, violence, his habit of insulting people, his cruelty, his continual murders of people untried and uncondemned, and his never-ending gratuitous and most grievous inhumanity, end quote. In other words, Pilate was not a man of noble character. He was hated by the Jewish people, and nor was he particularly fond of them. He found them to be constantly troublesome and an annoying pain in his side. So in verse 2, this Pilate, Pontius Pilate, governor, questioned Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? And note that phrase, the king of the Jews. In our passage today, three times, The verse I just read, verse 9 and verse 12, and also next week's passage three more times, verses 18, 26, 32, the king of the Jews. And it's important to remember, when Pilate asked him this question, Jesus looked nothing like a king or a ruler or someone who has power or authority. Remember, in verse 65 of the previous chapter, some began to spit at him, and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and say, say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. Okay, so he's, he's covered in spit. He's been beaten, punched, slapped in the face. He looks like a, a lowly criminal, okay, a bloody mess. So Pilate's question is, you? You are the king of the Jews? Absurd. Ludicrous. 
So Jesus answers him briefly, as Mark records, about the truth of who he is. He acknowledges it. It is as you say. In John chapter 18, if you want to turn there just for a moment, it's the parallel passage. One of the other parallel passages is in the Gospels. John chapter 18, verses 33 to 37. John expounds a bit on this interaction. John 18, verse 33 says, Therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? And look at verse 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Okay, so Jesus, Jesus acknowledges that, yes, he is a king, but not the kind of king that Pilate is thinking of. He's not an earthly political king. His kingdom is not of this world. It's not of this realm. And so that's the way he answers him. But look what happens back in Mark 15, verse 3. The chief priest began to accuse him harshly. And here again, we need the other Gospels to uh, help us see what's, what's um, happening. And Luke 23 gives a little more detail. Luke 23, verse 2, you can just listen to this. They began to accuse him, saying... Listen, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. But they kept on insisting, saying he stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. So here's more false accusations from the Jewish leaders, right? more twisting of Jesus' words and teachings, charging him with stirring up the crowds, disturbing the peace, rousing people up to incite riots and rebellion against Rome as a threat against Caesar. And Jesus' response is what? That's right, silence. Silence. He doesn't try to defend himself. He doesn't correct them. He doesn't point out their inconsistent testimonies and half-truths, which are basically lies. Hey, why, why does he do that? Why does he not rise up to defend his good name? Well, there's no need to defend oneself when all the charges are false. They're lying. Second, there's a fulfillment of prophecy here in detail. Isaiah 53, listen to verse 7 and 9. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Verse 9, he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. And so the third reason is Jesus' hour had come. He knew it. It was here. His time of suffering. His time to glorify the Father. 
All this was part of his road to the cross. The affliction, oppression, scourging. He told the disciples it was coming. You remember in Mark chapter 11, right? He told them a number of times, actually. But Mark 11, verses 33 and 34, he told the disciples, The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. That happened. And they will condemn him to death. That happened. And will hand him over to the Gentiles. That's happening. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. That has happened and it is happening and it will happen. And Pilate himself, as I just read, is amazed. He's amazed at this. He marveled that such an obviously innocent man would not even defend himself. He's shocked, actually, that the Jews are falsely accusing this Jesus of crimes that would warrant the death penalty. And yet Jesus offers himself no defense, no plea, no nothing, nary a word. And there's a certain astonishment, a certain even admiration from Pilate at this man before him. And so before we get to the next point, I want to just bring out a couple applications, two, two suggested applications. One for believers, for Christians, and the other for, for non-Christians. The first one, again, as we read from 1 Peter 2, which was part of the point of reading that scripture this morning, but 1 Peter 2, verses 21 to 23, I'll read it again for you. It says, For you have been called, you Christians, you believers, have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And so Jesus is an example for Christian people, for believers, his disciples. Um, and this, this example, when you look at the whole passage from 1 Peter 2 and all those different scenarios and, and hierarchies, um, it's example of submission, examples of humility, and we, uh, as followers of Christ, um, need to take on that attitude of submission and humility. And so part of that, very practically, is not being so quick to defend ourselves when we are clearly wronged and not hating when we are hated, as we just read in First Peter 2, not reviling when others revile us. Okay, this is the mark of a, a Christian who's willing to, to receive that kind of treatment with grace, with love, and with the blessing of others. And so that example extends to even suffering. Suffering even when we're unfairly treated, whether it's at work or in our families or some incident that happens out in the street. Suffering and sacrifice. Okay, this is the example that Jesus has set before us. And once again, simply... To sacrifice means to give something good up for the benefit and blessing of others. Okay, that's the basic meaning. And so maybe a good question for us as brothers and sisters in Christ these days are what are we sacrificing for the sake of Christ? And what are we sacrificing for the sake of others? 
Okay, whether it's our time, our energy, our, our prayers, our resources, our money, things that we, 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 we cherish, what are we giving up for the blessing and benefit of other people as we follow Christ? And I'll remind you from Romans 12, verse 1, it calls us to sacrifice basically everything. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. It's like we're, we're laying our entire lives upon the altar and, and giving ourselves up for the sake of Christ and the gospel and for other people. Acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So that is one application I think we can make for, for us as Christians. But going back to our question of the day, our question of the day, what will you do with King Jesus? So there's two options if we're not yet believers in Christ. We can be like Pilate and merely consider his claims, question him, and evaluate his behavior, and even marvel at him. Be amazed. There are many people since the time of Pontius Pilate who have admired Jesus, who look favorably upon him, who see him in a good light, even consider him him to be a, a remarkable figure, but they still don't believe in him. They refuse to believe who he is as God the Son and the King of not only the Jews, but the King of all kings, and they reject him as their personal Lord. Okay, so there's that option. Do like Pilate did. Or, or you can simply receive him and believe in him as your personal Savior and Lord. He died for the forgiveness of your sins. And by faith in him alone and believing in his resurrection, you can have eternal life and know the God of the universe. So let's look at what else Pilate does with King Jesus here. In verses 6 through 10, and uh, what we're going to see is that he evades responsibility and appeases the crowd. Okay? He evades, E-V-A-D-E-S, evades responsibility and appeases the crowd. And an important note is at this point when Pilate hears, I read to you from Luke 23, right, that he's a Galilean. When he hears that, he sends him off to Herod, who's the one has, who has specific jurisdiction over that area. So Pilate tries to get this situation off of his hands, and he evades his responsibility. Luke is the one who records this. And you know what? I'm not going to read it, but it's Luke 23, verses 6 through 12. And by the way, that's trial number five out of six that Jesus goes to before Herod. And um, just to sum up, Jesus says nothing in reply to Herod's questioning either. And the, the, the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, are also continuing to charge him falsely. And so Herod, he simply continues in mockery of this so-called king of the Jews. And he dresses him up in a, a gorgeous robe, is the way Luke puts it. And he sends him back to Pilate. So Pilate tries to evade responsibility here, but it doesn't work. So what does Pilate do next with King Jesus? This is the sixth and last trial, along with the result that's described in verses 6 and on. So it says there, now at the feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. And that feast refers to the Passover feast. 
the custom was that the, the Roman governor would, would set free any one prisoner who the Jewish people requested of their choice. And this was a, a symbolic gesture of goodwill and a supposed show of Rome's mercy. And of course, Pilate thought the Jews would choose Jesus to release because he couldn't find any guilt in him, right? But, but, verse 6 or 7, there was a, there was a man named Barabbas. Okay? He's described as an insurrectionist, okay? a robber, a murderer. Matthew 27, 16 calls him a notorious prisoner. Okay, what is a, an insurrection? And he's, he's part of this insurrection, part of a bloody uprising, a revolt against the government. And this is a violent riot. And he's also called a robber. This is someone who seizes and plunders and takes by force. And it's not just a run-of-the-mill house burglar. Right? It's like a political terrorist, a guerrilla fighter, okay? uh, guilty of murder. It reminds me of just what's been going on the past few years, even in this country, Antifa, right? Those guys who dress up in black and they're causing all sorts of destruction and revolt, harm, even murder of people. And so one pastor writes this about Barabbas. Ironically, that name Barabbas means son of the father, Bar Abba, right? Son of the father. Here, the law-breaking son of a human father was being offered to the people in the place of the sinless son of the divine father. And aware of Jesus' popularity from just a few days earlier, okay, actually about less than a week, the triumphal entry in Mark 11, the governor was confident that the crowd would never choose Barabbas. Pilate's plan was simple. When the multitude selected Jesus, there would be nothing the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, could do. He could preserve justice and at the same time garner favor with the people. End quote. That is ironic. And a further irony is that what Jesus is being accused of, okay, Barabbas actually was. And he should have been executed. He should have been crucified by Rome as an example to the people of the price paid for rebelling against the government. And yet, King Jesus was going to die in this terrorist, insurrectionist place. But the crowd, of course, they wanted Pilate to release this wicked criminal. And he answers them again, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? And he asks because he knows that Jesus is, is not guilty of any crime worthy of death. He knows Jesus is innocent. He has not committed any capital crimes. He knew it, and even back in Luke 23, Herod knew it too. And neither of these guys are, are just or, or noble, upright characters. Okay, Luke 23, verse 13 to 15, as he summons the chief priests and rulers, he says to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion, and behold... Having examined him before you, I found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. Parallel passage, Luke 23, 13 to 15. 
Hey, Luke's account keeps emphasizing that. Pilate knew of no guilt. He wanted to release Jesus. But getting back to Mark 15 here, he even picks up on the Jewish leader's motives for handing Jesus over to him. Right? He says because of envy. He was aware. Hey, they were jealous of Jesus' popularity, his influence with the people, even his miraculous powers to heal the sick and to help the suffering. Additionally, they hated his authoritative teachings, okay, his message of gospel grace, that they were all sinners who could not make themselves right with God through their religious works, that they were all in need of forgiveness and salvation before God. Even they, the great Pharisees and scribes and elders, they needed to repent as well. They hated his claims to be one with the Father, his claims to be the I Am. They hated that he called himself the Lord of the Sabbath, and they called and he called God his own father, making himself equal with God. All these things happened during his life and ministry and caused them to want to stone him to death. And then lastly, they were offended and threatened by his most recent temple cleansing, by his claiming such authority to do such a thing, and by his threats to their bottom line, their financial profit, as some were making a lot of money from this unholy system. So for all these reasons, as we've seen through our study in Mark's Gospel, the Jewish religious leaders wanted Jesus dead. And even Pilate, this pagan Gentile Roman governor, he was aware that envy was one of their motives as well for handing King Jesus over to them. So he asked, do you want me to release for you this King of the Jews? And so... Can we take note of something? Pilate could have. He should have just followed his own reason, his own conscience at this point. A noble, just man would have done the right thing and released him. The case was settled. Clearly, Jesus was innocent of any capital crimes. Barabbas was actually guilty of murder and insurrection. He should have been executed. But nonetheless, Pilate wrings his hands with indecision, trying to appease and appeal to the crowds. And so I ask anyone here who's on the fence this morning about your status, your condition, your relationship with God, and your perspective on the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you, are you being indecisive about who he is? Are you, are you just putting off trying to put off your decision about your relationship with him? Is there anything or anyone in this world that you're trying to appease and compromising your faith in Christ or your professed faith in Christ? This could be a person, a relationship, uh, your work, your family, your tradition, any number of things. Our question again, what will you do with this king who claims his rightful place on the throne of your heart. Well, we've seen a couple things that Pilate has done. Let's look at the last one. What does he do with King Jesus? Well, in verses 11 to 15, he caves into the crowd to save his own skin. Basically, that's what he does. Caves into the crowd, the world, if you will, to save his own skin. Verses 11 to 15. 
says, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Answering again, Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, crucify him. Pilate says, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted, all the more, crucify him. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. After having him scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. And here we see the depravity and darkness of sinful man's hearts, screaming for Jesus' blood, swayed by their desire to, to have an earthly Messiah for a political king, following these unbelieving religious leaders who do not know God, who are sons of the devil, as Jesus calls them, who reject and hate the truth and thus hate Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And some in this crowd shouting for Jesus to be crucified were less than a week ago, shouting something entirely different, right? Mark chapter 11, verses 9 and 10, the triumphal entry, as it's called. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. But the scene has completely changed now. This man who was hailed as he rode into town, into Jerusalem, into the city on a donkey is under arrest at this point. He's on trial for his life. Beaten, bloodied, scorned, they see him. Soon to be scourged at the hands of Gentile pagan Rome. So the abuse, the abandonment that I told you is kind of like the theme of this last section of Mark. The abandonment of King Jesus is on full display at this juncture. They're literally shouting for him to be nailed to a cross. They're not asking. They're demanding. They're even commanding over and over and over to this Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, to crucify him, to do it now. Don't delay crucify him and as the net bible notes crucifixion was the cruelest form of punishment practiced by the romans roman citizens could not normally undergo it it was reserved for the worst crimes like treason and evasion of due process in a capital case the roman historian cicero called it quote a cruel and disgusting penalty end quote and the Jewish historian Josephus called it the worst of deaths, end quote. And we're going to see more of that next week in, in the coming verses in Mark. This is what the angry, hostile mob was now crying out for, kradzo. It, it's, it's one of those Greek words that the very pronunciation of it uh, hearkens what it is. It's like the hoarse cry of a raven. It can be an inarticulate and brutish sound, this shouting, this crying out, an exclamation of fear or pain. It's used of the cry of an animal or loud barking of a dog or even two men in a quarrel trying to bawl each other down. And we as Christians here today um, are rightly stunned at this scene. Um, sometimes it's hard to to picture, it's quite upsetting okay, to try to picture what's happening to our Savior. The abuse, the abandonment, the fickle frenzy of the people, and the hostile hatred of the religious leaders all crying out for 
King Jesus to be nailed to a cross. And yet, yet we're humbly reminded that we ourselves were once dead in our trespasses and sins. We once did not believe in King Jesus. We once rejected his lordship over us. We once wanted to live the way that we wanted to live. And we would have shouted for his crucifixion if it meant that we could be the authority of our own lives. So we recognize that it was our sin that helped crucify Christ. It was our sins that placed the nails through his hands. It was my sin and your sin that held him there upon that cross. Our sins that were put upon his shoulders, that he bore the blame and shame. And so we gratefully rejoice that he would bear such an unbearable load for us, the full weight of our sins upon himself. His suffering death for our release, our freedom unto life. So back to Pilate's predicament here. What's he to do with this king? What is he to do? Well, John chapter 19, once again, I've come to this a couple times, but John 19, verses 12 to 16. Listen to this. It says, As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. These are scary words for Governor Pilate, right? Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. So they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Speaking of blasphemy. So what does Pilate do? Well, Matthew tells us that Pilate was about to have a huge problem in addition to all this. A riot was starting. Verse 24 of Matthew 27. So what is his response? Verse 15, back to Mark chapter 15. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. He caves into the demands of the mob. Obviously, a riot here would not look good or be good for him, would it? The emperor would not be too pleased to hear that account of this possible threat to his power, uh, a riot is happening in the, in the city. Pilate's own position in power could be in serious jeopardy here. So he gives in, he caves. And it says in Mark, then having after having Jesus scourged, and it's seemingly a small detail here in Mark, but listen, this meant that Jesus was severely beaten with a multi-stranded whip, with at the end of those strands were bits of sharp metal and bone that ripped through the flesh and was the most severe level of Roman beatings that came before execution. And according to Bedag, this flogging, this scourging, was, quote, a punishment inflicted on slaves. 
after a sentence of death had been pronounced on them. So in the case of Jesus before his crucifixion. And victims of this scourging often collapsed and died from, from it. With that horrific abuse, Pilate hands Jesus over to be crucified. And um, the end of the story here a little bit, fast forwarding to our friend Pontius Pilate, to quote MacArthur, he says, years later, around A.D. 36, Pilate blundered again when he unwisely ordered his troops to ambush a group of Samaritan worshipers. When the people of Samaria complained to his immediate superior, the Roman legate of Syria, Pilate was summoned back to Rome. After that, little is known about him. According to tradition, he was banished in disgrace to Gaul, where he eventually committed suicide. End quote. So once again, Pilate caves in to the mob, to the world, self-protection, fear of man, which we talked about a couple Sundays ago. The fear of man brings a, a, a snare, a trap. His decision ignored his own sense of justice, his own conscience. He made that decision to satisfy the crowd. So he gives up the innocent Lord Jesus, to be killed. That brings us to, back to the question of the day, dear people who are here joining us today. The ultimate question every person every, ever born must ask is, what shall I do with him who is called the King of the Jews? And we've seen today what Pilate did. Okay, but... What will you do? What will you do with King Jesus? And I love what Sinclair Ferguson says. He writes, Without knowing it, the religious leaders and Pilate and Barabbas were all part of a tapestry of grace which God was weaving for sinners. Their actions spoke louder than their words, louder than the cries of the crowds for Jesus' blood. Jesus was not dying for his own crimes, but for the crimes of others. Not for his own sins, but the sins of others. He did not die for himself. He died for us. Have you ever seen what they were all too blind to notice? End quote. And that's the question. Will your eyes be opened this morning to the truth of who Jesus Christ is? He is the loving Lord. He is the perfect Savior. He is the only way that you can get to heaven when you pass. So think about it and decide today. Today, let this be the day of your salvation. Are you convinced that Jesus is the promised Savior? Are you persuaded that he is who he claims to be as not just the king of the Jews, but the king of the entire universe and the king of you, your heart? Have you accepted his offer of forgiveness and eternal life and his command for you to return from your sin and place your faith in him. Listen, many people believe that Christ died. Okay? And that's just factual history. But believing that he died for you, for your sins that deserve God's wrath, okay, 
That's salvation. When you believe in Him personally. So the, the call and the invitation and even the command is come to Jesus. Come one, come all. Come and receive and believe upon Him as your Savior and Lord today. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that there is good news in this dark and twisted world. And we see even today, God, that maybe people don't say that they want to shout for Jesus to be nailed to a cross, but by their rejection of him, by their hatred for the truth, and by their refusal to submit to Christ, the only King, the only Savior, they are doing the same thing as Pilate did and the same thing that the crowds were shouting for some 2,000 years ago. I pray, Lord, by the proclamation of your word and the preaching of this pastor this morning that anyone here and anyone on the live stream who has heard would bow the knee and confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. They would call upon his name and receive the promise of forgiveness and eternal life for their, their souls to be forever saved and to know you and to be with you in heaven, even when they pass. We thank you, God, that there is hope, there is good news, and we just want to submit to it today. So thank you, Father, for this word for us today, and we pray that it has touched our hearts for your glory. In honor we pray. Amen.